صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for tuning in to Palestine Remembered on another lockdown Saturday. Just a quick update on last week's Prisoner Day show. The UN released a report this week talking about Israel and its actions in imprisoning Palestinians. And just quoting from this uh, UN report, over the past month, Israel has released hundreds of Israeli prisoners as a preventative and protective step. It has not applied similar measures to the Palestinian prisoners, This indicates discriminatory treatment towards the Palestinian prisoners, which would be a violation of international law. Israel should be taking steps to release those facing arbitrary measures as well as vulnerable groups in its prisons to reduce overcrowding and ensure the minimum conditions to prevent the spread of viruses. This talks about administrative uh, prisoners. They also noted that family visits were banned. They spoke about that and said it is critical that any such measures are medically justified. And if so, alternative means for communication, such as video conferencing, should also be made available. Special and more relaxed measures should also apply to children and women visits. The experts expressed serious concerns about um, the Israelis impeding the efforts of Palestinians to combat COVID-19 and East Jerusalem in particular. The Israeli authorities recently raided a testing clinic in the densely populated Palestinian neighbourhood of Sidwan. Under the pretext that its testing kits were provided by the Palestinian Authority, and Israel has also arrested doctors. It's inconceivable in the current conditions, especially in light of the lack of testing kits and other equipment, that Israel would undermine existing efforts to ensure that a larger portion of the Palestinian population is tested. Such efforts are especially needed when recent data suggests that rates of COVID have significantly increased in occupied East Jerusalem. That's no surprise to us and listeners of this show. We're very aware of the cruelty of Zionism and the occupation of Palestine. One of the things about corona is it's taught us a new word, or a new term, essential workers. Uh, it's been amazing that uh, that term is now broadly used to include anyone from a cleaner to a shop assistant in Coles, a checkout person. One of the things that Corona has taught us is what isn't essential. Thanks to Corona, America today isn't invading anyone, which means their drones, their missiles, their tanks, their fighter jets, there's no invasions and no killings. So the millions of Iraqis, Afghans, Syrians and Libyans who were killed essentially prove today that war is not an essential service. Now, if you're a Palestinian in Palestine, occupied Palestine, you're staying home. Palestinians are doing the right thing. They're socially distancing. They're listening to medical professionals. But what is Israel doing? Israel's invading villages, raiding homes, exposing themselves to entire families, dragging Palestinians out, cooping them in overcrowded uh, prison cells, denying them access to their families and legal authorities. Israel is using this virus, using worldwide deflection of attention on the crimes that are occurring in Palestine to... A, push through the annexation 
according to the Trump plan, and B, evicting Palestinians from their ancestral homes. And we're going to go through a couple of the strategic opportunities that Israel has seen because of COVID. Never one to miss an opportunity at Hasbara or propaganda, Benjamin Yayu has explored the pandemic and has explored the crisis to consolidate his authority in the first, uh, in one instance, and secondly, to push through what wonderful work they are. And the Israeli Foreign Ministry has released a video of Antonio Guterres commending Israel and the Palestinian Authority for their joint efforts to minimise the spread of coronavirus. What he doesn't talk about is what Israel is not doing to help the Palestinians in that it's not allowing ventilators or tests into Gaza and what it's doing within its Palestinian citizenry of the State of Israel, the siege and what it does. One of the things that Netanyahu has been able to do within Israel is to consolidate his power and he's been able to wedge Benny Gantz into creating a coalition and to remain on as Prime Minister of Israel. One of the things that have been talked about is the authoritarian nature of the State of Israel, that in fact there might be around the world people have been declaring states of emergency to enact measures to control their populations, but they didn't need to do that in Israel because that's uh, been incorporated into their domestic law since Israel was established in 1948. Uh, Israel's radical response to this pandemic is built upon the powers and infrastructure that exist within the society that is Israel, the military society that is Israel, and it's been perfected in its colonial expansion and military occupation of Palestinians and something they export for profit today. And so whilst the rest of the world is new to full lockdown, the machination and processes have been tried and perfected within Israel, which has made its ability to do that so effective. Something that they did that nobody else, or I haven't heard anybody else do, is give authority to their spy agency, the Shin Bet, to use tracking software that they use against the Palestinians on its own citizens, without their knowledge, to track people when they should have been self-isolating. This speaks to the Orwellian nature of that society and culture and how they've used that learning in their domination and control of Palestinians. As a sovereign power, as the occupying power of Palestine, Israel's got a legal and ultimately overall responsibility for everyone within its control. Not just the Jews in its control, but the 7 million Palestinians within occupied Palestine. Adela, the legal rights group in Israel, took a petition to the Israeli High Court and showed that real-time coronavirus updates were only available in Hebrew. You couldn't even get it in Arabic for its Palestinian citizens. It's no surprise that several Palestinian localities, such as Umm al-Faham, uh, coastal towns and uh, Darabiyya near Nazareth, these are under virtual siege in the north of Israel. And these are amongst the most infected. Statistically, Palestinians were only getting 10% of tests. So if you're an Arab, you only get 10% of the tests. This is despite being one-fifth of the population. The reality, Israel has spent years segregating and dividing the Palestinians and has the architecture in place for mass lockdowns. Under the guise of emergency, Israel has been able to create a smoke stream and do that without anybody actually noticing. During this health emergency, there was supposed to be a moratorium on home demolitions. That didn't stop the Israelis, though, as we know. On March 12th, they went in with some settlers into Nablus where they visited a mythical site that the settler movement wants to annex. And this is in defiance of Palestinian authorities' efforts to prevent large gatherings. Remember that Nablus is a Palestinian town full of Palestinians. On the 26th of March, the army bulldozers arrived in the town 
in the Jordan Valley to confiscate and destroy materials used for a field clinic for Palestinian residents. A few days later, March 30, wearing hazmat suits, the army locked down Palestinian homes in Ramallah. What's unconscionable is what Israel has done to prevent Palestinians to take measures to combat the spread of COVID. In the early hours of April 3rd, the Israeli police arrested Fadil Hadam. He's the Minister for Jerusalem Affairs for the Palestinian Authority. They kicked the door in on his home, grabbed him, and his crime was he was setting up disinfection stations and acting to instruct people to remain home. Amazing. Two days later, on April 5th, the Palestinian governor of Jerusalem, Adnan Raith, was arrested in the early hours by Israeli police officers because it, and they were decked out in full surgical masks and stuff and plastic gloves. And they arrested him for similar crimes. The official charge was Palestinian activity in Jerusalem. Now that's illegal in Israel for Palestinians to act with any sort of authority. In Gaza, as if the siege is not enough, the Israeli defense has started to spray toxic herbicides with crop dusters along the border. The challenge, of course, with a crop duster is once you spray, you don't know where the wind's going to take it. So aside from being a nuclear nation, nuclear submarines, F-16 fighter jets, not satisfied with all that modern weaponry, Israel's gone and weaponized the wind. The reality of these herbicides is they get carried hundreds of metres deep into Gaza lands, devastating livelihoods, destroying crops. Is the siege not enough? Does Zionism know no humanity? A poem by Samah Sabawi and music by Nahad Reis. The UN said Gaza was unlivable. That life beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, like the rainfall and the winter storms. Ferocious, it grows like dandelions, it powers through like inexorable love, like an irresistible kiss, like the birthing of new life beyond the statistics of death. Life beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, like the sunrise, predictable like the movement of the tides, invincible like flowers in the desert, unassailable like a smile on the lips of the beloved, unequivocal like a word that splits bullets in halves, indomitable like a revolutionary march, unstoppable like the earth's rotation, formidable like a fist in the face of occupation, undeniable like destiny, like freedom from tyranny, like justice for refugees. So listen carefully. Two million captive hearts are beating off rhythm. There is no harmony beyond livability, only the inevitable. Beware the inevitable. Many of our listeners know about the First Intifada and the Second Intifada, and they're, t- they're the uprisings, the struggles within the occupied West Bank against the Israeli military occupation. But for true aficionados of Palestine and the history of Palestine, they know that these were, in fact, not the first and second intifadas, but rather the fourth and fifth waves of protestation against a hundred years of colonialism in Palestine. 
Palestinians first were upset when they found out about the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 16 and then the Balfour Declaration in 17 after the British immediately reneged on the Hussein McMahon papers, the promise of an independent Palestine. Following the liberation of Palestine, the charge of the Light Horse Brigade into Beersheba, unbeknownst to the Palestinians, the Arabs, every promise that had been made was about to be broken. The colonialist attitude of the Sykes-Picot Agreement between the French and the British was ratified at the St. Remo Conference in 1920 and then fully ratified by the precursor of the United Nations, the League of Nations, in July of 1922. Ultimately, the Ottoman Empire had gone and the French and the British took over. The French were given the mandate for Syria and, and Lebanon and the British were given Palestine, Iraq and Jordan. And this decision shattered the hopes of the Arabs who had fought alongside the Allies with an expectation of a promise that would be fulfilled of Arab independence. As we know, alongside all of that, the Balfour Declaration promising a homeland for the Jewish people was another evil construct that the Palestinians were going to have to deal with. In 1920, Britain appointed the first High Commissioner to Palestine, a British Jew, Sir Herbert Samuel, who arrived marking the end of 400 years of Turkish rule and the start of Britain's 30-year domination of Palestine. It was around then that Palestinians were already resentful because of the increasing rise of Jewish settlers started demonstrating in Jerusalem in February in 20. In fact, 1,500 people came onto the streets after the British general, Louis Bowles, declared the enforcement of the Balfour Declaration. A month later, there was a second demonstration that was more bloody this time with Arabs attacking uh, the British. Bowles banned all demonstrations. He didn't want any demonstrations against his plan to bring in more Zionist settlers. In May 21, an anti-Zionist riot broke out in Yaffa. Thousands of Palestinians were killed. In 1929, further unrest, this time at Borak Wall, in the heart of Jerusalem. To Jews, they know this as the Wailing Wall, and it forms part of the western wall of the Aqsa Mosque compound. By the end of the 20s, a group of rabbis urged Jews to gather at the wall to perform public prayer. The aim, after the call, was to seize the wall and declare it a sacred place for Jews. Muslim Palestinians were outraged and clashes and a demonstration arose. And these confrontations became increasingly violent and more so resistance was growing all around the country to the British idea of turning Palestine into a Jewish homeland. In the 30s, the Nazis came to power in Germany and Jewish immigration into Palestine intensified, in fact reaching a peak in 1935 of around 61,000 Jewish immigrants. By 1936, Jews from outside Palestine made up a third of the population of Palestine. Such huge numbers meant that land was obtained and tensions rose between the Palestinians and the Jewish newcomers. A huge part of the tension here was there had been Jews in Palestine since time immemorial, but they were Palestinian. These new Jews, these Europeans, came and created enclaves for themselves. They would only use Jewish labour. They would exclude and marginalise any of the uh, indigenous Palestinians from that land that they've cultivated for many years and generations before, and that further escalated the tensions. Arguably, a couple of straws that broke the camel's back was October 1935 with the discovery of a ship of arms that came into Yaffa, destined for the Haganah. This really set off Palestinian concerns. That the Zionist movement wasn't peaceful, wasn't coming to cohabitate with the indigenous Palestinians, was in fact setting up for an armed insurrection. Only a month after finding that ship of arms, the most popular Palestinian leader, Sheikh Iz Adin al-Qasim, was killed in a firefight with the British forces. In Qasim's funeral in Haifa, there was a mass outpouring of public rage. 
This all led into 1936 and the first sustained revolution, if you will, by the Palestinian Arabs. And this was the Great Arab Revolt. Arguably, this is the first real Palestinian intifada. For three years, Palestinians struggled against British imperialism and the Zionist colonialization efforts that were in cahoots with the British occupation. What started out as that general strike on April 19 quickly spread to all the Palestinian cities and villages. A new Palestinian leadership was born of resistance to the occupation of Palestine, a resistance to the colonization of Palestine by European Jews. To give you an order of what this strike was about, everything stopped. Business communications, government services, the ports in in Haifa and in Yaffa, bus drivers, train drivers, shops, everything came to a grinding halt. For six months, this general strike was sustained. These pesky Arabs, these pesky Palestinians were not playing into the Zionist and British plan, and it really upset them. So the British employed various tactics to break up the strike and to, to quell the insurrection. What did the British do? They grew their policemen, police ranks by recruiting Jewish Palestinians, new European Jews to Palestine to be part of the British police. They conducted house searches, night raids, beatings, imprisonment, torture, deportation. Large areas of Yaffa were demolished and the British called in military reinforcements. In October, six months after the strikes had started and the revolt had started, the Arab Higher Committee, which is the Palestinian leadership, under the pressure of the British actions and also under pressure of other Arab heads of state who'd had their independence but left the Palestinians behind, agreed to appear before the Peel Commission. In 1937, the Peel Commission published its report recommending the partition of Palestine to Jewish and Arab states. After calling off the strike and dismayed at the outcome of the Peel Commission, the Palestinian population relaunched the revolt and initiated the second phase of the revolt. The second phase lasted from July 37 until the end of 38, and it saw significant gains by the Palestinians. Huge parts of Palestine fell into Palestinian hand, including Jerusalem, full control over Jerusalem. The postal service was replaced, the courts were replaced, institutions were put into place. All the mechanizations and institutions that should be a state were now Palestinian, in Palestinian control by Palestinians. Now, this went contrary to Balfour Declaration, contrary to everything the Zionists were trying to do, and so they were going to have none of it. Remember, at this point, the rest of the Arab world had been given their promise of independence and statehood. Mandates were ending everywhere. So the British went all out. The Arab High Committee and all Palestinian political parties were outlawed. Political and community leaders were arrested. A number of high-profile Palestinians were exiled. Every military aspect of the Counterinsurgency intensified. The British ta- called in tanks, aeroplanes, heavy artillery. The British went one step further, collective punishment. Not only that, thousands of Palestinians were relegated to detention camps. Residential quarters were destroyed. Schools were closed. Villages were co- collectively confined and forced to billet British troops and police. On top of that, Zionist military institutions took advantage of the situation to build up capacity with the support of the British. By early 1939, members of the Jewish settlement police were 14,000. They were subsidised, uniformed and armed and trained by the British. The third phase of the rebellion lasted from August 38 to the summer of 39. The British dispatched another commission of inquiry, this one headed by Sir John Woodhead, and he was charged with responsibility to examine the technical aspects of implementing partition. In November 38, 
the Commission concluded that the partition was not practicable. This didn't dissuade the British. They launched an all-out offensive. In 1939, more Palestinians were killed, more were executed by hanging, and twice as many prisoners were taken that year than the previous year. In May of 1939, the British government published a new white paper, and it basically said that Britain's obligations under the Balfour Declaration to a new Jewish national home had substantially been fulfilled. This new diplomatic offensive, but mainly the military offensive, put an end to the rebellion by the summer, July, August of 1939. Over the revolt's three years, over 5,000 Palestinians had been killed and nearly 15,000 wounded. The Palestinian leadership had been exiled, assassinated and imprisoned. Whatever gains the Palestinians might have made throughout that revolt were quickly overtaken by the larger geopolitical process of World War II. This British and Zionist assault on Palestine, on the Palestinians, on Palestinian institutions, leadership and the people meant that the Palestinians lost Palestine, not in 1948 in the Nakba, but during the Great Arab Revolt. Any semblance of resistance that we might have been able to assemble was completely and utterly demoralised and diminished.
Let's finish this week with some good news. Some great news, in fact, from England, where the Palestine Solidarity Campaign won a huge landmark legal victory against the British government. The Supreme Court ruled local pension schemes could divest from companies complicit in Israel's military occupation. This all comes from a 2016 UK government guidance. Now, this guidance prohibited public pension funds from pursuing policies deemed contrary to British foreign or defence policy. What this meant was that funds could not ethically choose to divest from businesses that they didn't want to be involved in. Businesses that were complicit in the Israeli occupation, but it would also mean they couldn't divest from other companies that might have been deemed to be contrary to British or foreign defence policy. Now, this is an amazing win. It's an amazing win, not just for the Palestinian boycott on divestment and sanctions campaign, but it's a, a win for the fundamental principles of democracy, freedom of expression and justice. Human beings should be afforded the right to choose if they want to buy a product or choose not to buy a product. I choose not to want to buy any palm oil because I know what the Indonesians are doing in Indonesia to the rainforests there and the orangutans, let alone what the Indonesians are doing in West Papua. This is my right to choose not to do that. To tell people that they don't have a right to invest their funds in entities that don't subscribe to, don't participate in, don't support the ongoing brutalisation of the Palestinians, the military occupi uh, occupation of Palestine, the denial of Palestinian rights to their ancestral homes, the denial of Palestinian refugees to the right of return, the denial of Palestinians to live with hope and freedom, that should be illegal. That should be illegal, not to stopping people choosing not to buy a product because it's made or benefits Israel. Be under no illusion, this was no small win. And I say it's no small win because it's a big thing to take on a government. But so dogged was the government, the British government, to protect this position, to protect Israel. So dogged was the determination that when the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign won in the High Court, they then forced it to the Court of Appeal. But this week, this is a final victory because it was at the Supreme Court. What it does is create a precedent now for other Western democracies that says that it is illegal for you to deny someone the right to choose. The Supreme Court verdict grants the pension scheme the right to decide how, where and when money will be invested. Now, most importantly, this is one of Britain's biggest uh, pension schemes. It's got almost 6 million public sector employees, and has a value of almost £300 million, so that's half a, half a trillion dollars. This won't stop Boris Johnson and his far right-wing government. He's already spoken late last year about introducing legislation into Parliament there in Britain to make it illegal for UK public bodies to work with those involved in the BDS campaign, similar to what's in America, where some states in the United States have created forms that contractors need to sign pledging that they've never boycotted the State of Israel and they will never boycott the State of Israel to get government work. It's an illegal restraint of trade and a denial of a fundamental right of humans to choose what they do. And it's a warning to those in Australia that are thinking about doing this. Friends of Palestine, advocates of Palestine, Palestinians won't let this pass. We'll fight for our right to boycott and divest and sanction an illegal racist state that continues to perpetrate and the longest military occupation on earth 
and deny the fundamental rights of Palestinians to return to their homes, live in their ancestral homes, and cease being refugees. Thanks for listening to another edition of Palestine Remembered. Remember to tell your friends to tune in, download the podcast, share it with your friends. Go to apan.org.au, join APAN, apan.org.au. Be sure to visit olivekids.org.au if you're that way inclined to make a donation or sponsor a Palestinian orphan in Gaza. We'd love your support at olivekids.org.au. Be sure to tune in next week, Saturday at 9.30 on 3CR, 8.55am. Download the podcast, tell your friends, and don't forget, free, free Palestine.